1: this is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and I am in ugly, dull, gray New York City, the, 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 the mood of which was lifted a little bit today for those we were walking along the river as the U.S. Navy hospital ship Comfort slowly made its way up the Hudson, uh, which uh, was both uh, inspiring and and kind of, kind of bleak at the same time. We are joined by a great group of people today, starting with our friend Joe Nye, who's a university distinguished service professor at Harvard, former dean of the Kennedy School of Government, and author of a, a new book called do morals matter presidents and foreign policy from fdr to trump and joe is joining us from new hampshire i think where it's snowing it's it's, indeed good to be with you good good to have you with us joe um and we are also joined by um rosa brooks of georgetown university law school hi rosa Hi, David. And Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. Hi, Corey.
0: Hello, my friends.
1: And David Sanger of the New York Times. Hi, David.
2: Hi, David. And, you know, I'm delighted to see that Joe actually has, like, internet service in New Hampshire. I, that's a big <laughs> move forward. Yeah. that's <laughs> <laughs> it, the, the,
1: the, the internet is, is new to New Hampshire, but I see that Vermont-New Hampshire rivalry uh yes. playing yes. playing out there um and as a special treat for all of you who are longtime fans of deep state radio um we have uh one of our favorites who's been off on the campaign trail uh and that is evelyn farkas formerly of the department of defense now a candidate for congress in new york state hi evelyn
3: Hi, David. Thank you so much. It's great to be back like old times.
1: It It, it is indeed. We've got a lot of folks. I, I do want to say to the, the audience, by the way, that just like most of the news shows you watch, since everybody's got to be remote, sometimes that has a bit of an effect on the sound quality. We're really working hard on it. And I think in a week or two, we're going to move to a different kind of a platform, maybe a Zoom-based platform that'll make it a little bit easier. But For now, folks will be muting and we'll be trying to to manage this so you can hear everybody. Uh, Joe, your book, Do Morals Matter Presidents and Foreign Policy from FDR to Trump. I suspect when you started writing the book, uh, you did not have in mind a situation like the crisis we face right now, um, a global public health crisis, a global economic crisis, a global crisis of American leadership in which morals matter a lot. But perhaps you can connect the thesis of the book to the situation in which we're in.
4: Well, the book does start with a crisis of a very different type. It starts, uh, it takes all 14 presidents since uh, Franklin Roosevelt. So that crisis was the middle of World War II, and of course, followed by the efforts to develop a strategy for the Cold War. But I think that what interests me about the connection to the current crisis is there's a cynical view uh, in our profession that uh, morals don't matter. Everything's national interest. National interest bake the cake, and then politicians come along and sprinkle a little moral icing on it to make it look pretty. And uh, if you have that view of history, what I try to show is you're going to get history wrong because morals did matter and they matter now. So people say, well, America first, don't you expect Trump to take care of Americans first? The answer to that is yes, it's not whether you put your national interests uh, uh, as front of your mind when you're a president. It's how you define those national interests. Do you find them broadly, in which others are involved as well, or very narrowly? And I think what you notice if you contrast uh, Franklin Roosevelt and that crisis, the book starts with with uh, Donald Trump and the crisis we're in today, is Roosevelt defined our national interests very broadly. So did Truman and Eisenhower after him. Trump defines our national interests very, very narrowly. It's all transactional, uh, what you do for me just now, as opposed to a broader structure of how my gain and your gain can coincide. And we see that in this current slanging match between uh, Americans and Chinese about uh, where did the virus originate and what do you call it. This is exactly the wrong way to go about thinking of, about dealing with a crisis. So it's a, it's a sad comment if you contrast the beginning of the book with the end of the book in terms of how two presidents have managed a crisis.
1: Yeah, well, that's, uh, you know, it's a very interesting and, and I think important thesis and, you know, Corey. As we look at this, um, one of the other things that strikes me is that it's 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 not just the morals of the U.S. president that matter; it's the morals of all the influential world leaders. And we're in a very interesting situation right now, and 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 disturbing to some degree. If you look at the most significant influential countries in the world. Um, you have Donald Trump in the U.S. You have Boris Johnson in the U.K. You have Bolsonaro in Brazil. You have Modi in India. You have Xi in China. You have Putin in Russia. Their moral compasses and how they define national interests um, are very different from what we've seen often over the past seventy-five years. We're, we we, we we're. That, that it's 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 not just that Trump is different. It's that the sort of head table of global leadership seems to be different.
0: Yes, I think that's right. And my theory of why that is, is because we're in a period of such rapid technological change that's driving very rapid kind of economic a reshuffling of the economic deck of winners and losers. Um, and that's making people really nervous. And we haven't in some time, and I don't just mean the duration of the Trump administration, had American presidents who would, for example, expend a lot of political capital explaining why we're fighting two wars or the importance of global cooperation. So investing in connecting, as Joe was saying, connecting the morality with our interests Um, is an essential function of leadership. And the U.S. has done it pretty well since 1945 by understanding that by building on uh, rules and norms and embedding them in institutions, that we create voluntary buy-in by other countries. And we do, not just for ourselves, but also for others, expand the aperture of how they think about their national interests because they see the value of cooperation. And that's, you know, among the many things President Trump is failing at now. Um, You know, he's not calling Prime Minister Modi to task. He's not calling Putin to task. He's not calling Viktor Orban and Hungary to task. Um, and, And American leadership really matters for that and we're seeing the cost of the narrow, kind of pinched, selfish version uh, that President Trump practices of America's interests.
1: Does this matter at all, Evelyn, on the campaign trail? I mean, you know, back in the day when you were primarily, you know, a DC policy type, you would have been right in the middle of all of this discussion and 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 carrying your own in in, in weight in, in in you know picking up on these themes. But you've been out there talking to regular folks, presumably, as you've been out there campaigning. Does the what Joe is talking about, Corey talking about, resonate with them, or are they like fill my potholes?
3: No, no, it does actually. Uh, but it may be a product of the fact that you know my district um, has a lot of people like me in it. I mean, I grew up here. I'm a product of this district, and people are very well educated, and they have a sense of pride in American values, core values that have to do, for example, with immigration. I mean, you know, it's New York um, right outside of New York City. So we are constantly having new immigrant populations and we have a very deep sense of uh, kind of an immigrant ethos here. Um, that, for one, means that we, we, we have people in our midst, including, of course, in my case, my parents, who came to this country because of the values that the country exp- espouses, because of our democracy, because of our generosity towards other countries and other peoples, our willingness and our ability to take in people who are desperate and give them a fresh start. So for this district here, I think it does matter a lot. Um, I, the the people who tend to support Trump in this district, I would say are probably one issue type. So they are either interested in the stock market almost exclusively <laughs> or, um, or they are maybe gun owners, um, you know, and so I would say, and maybe, you know, pro-life. But other than that, I mean, most of the people in this district really pride themselves on having. A set of core values that they consider intrinsic to America, and and again, all the the way that um, Joe described in his book, FDR and his leadership. I mean, that's the kind of leadership that people want here. And I will say that even before the coronavirus hit, I was having people contact me around the time when the president made the strike to take out um, the Iranian Quds Force commander. Um, and i had people m- messaging me sending me emails saying i am going to campaign for you because i'm afraid of this reckless foreign policy and you know the fact that somehow values were not at the core of what the president was doing undoubtedly were part of that equation you know that he wasn't looking out for the what's best for america or the world
1: it seems to me david that for all of this we're reacting to the crisis as it has evolved thus far, but that everything that Joe has said and that, that Corey and Evelyn has said actually is, is likely to be more important in the next phase. We've, we've now had the president say, we're gonna be shut down till the end of April. And really he was talking about starting to open things up in June. We now know that you know he and 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 the Governor of New York and others expect this uh, uh, crisis to peak over the next several weeks. We now have estimates of millions of Americans getting this disease and 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 hundred or two hundred thousand perhaps dying of this disease. We now have estimates of and the worst unemployment
2: that's the low, that's the low end uh, right right
1: right i'm I'm picking up on the the low end number used by the White House yesterday we We also have estimate today that the United States about to enter the worst unemployment crisis in its history, where the St Louis Fed predicted uh about a third of Americans will be unemployed. That's ten percent higher than we had during the Great Depression. Uh, And it's a global crisis. So that, you know, all of this is going to have global knock on effects. The price of oil is 20 bucks. That has a crushing effect on the Russians. Trump talked to Putin today. It's got a crushing effect on the Saudis and and others. So, you know, as, as you look forward and you prognosticate a little, looks to me like we're about to head into a very, very dark place where these issues of morality are going to be more important and challenged a little bit more. Do you agree or disagree?
2: No I think it's going to get harder as it as it goes on and for many of the reasons that Joe uh, laid out and actually I think his book, which uh, I read last month um, and which is terrific and uh, all your deep state radio um, listeners should should go out and buy and I would say that even if Joe didn't teach me everything that I, I knew,
1: And that's just to blame for everything I get wrong here. Um, uh, But I think that that was almost right up until the fact you gave him credit for everything you know. That was a compliment. Yeah, that was until
2: then. Yeah. Well, Joe knows me too well to know that I could have let that go on for too long. Um, So uh, you know, I think it's it's the FDR element and part of the the book that sort of most sticks with me. And I wrote a little bit about this in a news analysis. It's in the Times today. One of the things that FDR did so brilliantly was prepare the American public for what was coming. And he did that because he could look around corners. And, you know, I've been writing a lot in the past week about why Trump's effort to replicate the arsenal of democracy, not in building battleships, but in building ventilators, has turned into such a fiasco. And the reason was that President Trump wanted all the imagery of saying I'm a wartime president and none of the responsibility of being a wartime president. And so he didn't take over that productive capability and begin to say we're going to allocate these according to where they're needed the most because he didn't want to be blamed when the inevitable snafus and all of that happened. And that's the opposite of Roosevelt, who actually made his Arsenal of Democracy speech a year before Pearl Harbor because it was about building up that Arsenal of Democracy to help the British when uh, they were at their most desperate points in the war with Nazi Germany and before we had entered the war. What was missing here? The ability to think that it was the virus that was the biggest threat to the economy not people talking about the virus. So the president took the view that if you just ignored this for a month and a half, the virus would take the spin. And of course, the virus didn't care about the president's spin. And so we've started all of this way too late. And if you're wondering why it is we're going to pay such a deep price over the next year, year and a half, we would have paid a deep price anyway, but we would have paid much less of a price had we been able to get out ahead of it? And, you know, that is sort of the key element to leadership, which was to prepare Americans say, I realize you're conducting your daily lives right now, but you have something coming at you you can't see, and it's huge.
1: Yeah, you know, and it's interesting, Rosa, when you think about what David's talking about, and you think about the missteps along the way, um, I, you know, I also think, since Joe is here, I think of Another of his great contributions, and that is the concept of soft power, which he described as the uh, you know powers of persuasion. Um, but what we're seeing from Trump with the suppression and uh, turning on allies and and focusing on scapegoats um is the power of alienation. Um, you know, there are other leaders in the world who have uh uh, em, uh embraced that that power un, un, unwittingly as as well um but that's a kind of pernicious kind of soft power um and i'm just wondering do you think it can be reversed in this case do you think do you think that the united states can get its footing back to lead what has got to be a global response to the next phase of this because this disease is now spreading into Africa, it's spreading into Latin America, it's spreading into very vulnerable countries where the international community is going to play an essential role in um, either containing it and containing its consequences, or will suffer the consequences. What, what do you think, Rosa? Uh,
5: I think that we will not be able to do this under this president. Uh, I think that's extremely clear. Um, we are, uh, as as you said, we already have the highest number of confirmed cases ourselves of any country in the world. We are the richest, uh, most powerful nation in the world. And we have botched this more spectacularly than any other country in the world, including countries that have uh, far fewer resources. And I think both that our ability symbolically to play a global, global leadership role has been terribly damaged by the sight of uh, our president bumbling around, contradicting himself, contradicting the health experts and so forth. Um, but I also think that the, the sheer, the degree to which we will be utterly preoccupied with, with coping with and containing the chaos, health and economic chaos that we have, we have unleashed in, in part through our own poor preparation and response uh will prevent us from playing a a meaningful leadership role with other states even if this administration uh had the instinct and inclination to do so which frankly they won't uh i think the best we can hope for would be that if a democrat and it it obviously looks most likely to be joe biden at this stage uh wins in november that the, there could we could see a real shift in America's response, both a symbolic shift and a, and a practical shift in terms of foreign assistance, in terms of collaboration and cooperation with other states. Um, uh, and I and I, you know, that's obviously not going to be until at the earliest January of twenty twenty one. Although you know, the good news and the bad news is I don't think that this crisis will be over. I think that uh, if we're very very lucky. The most draconian, restrictive of the shutdowns and social distancing measures will be over, but the 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 sort of the the echoes and the possible sort of second, third, fourth rounds of the COVID nineteen infections are likely to be with us uh, for some years to come, at least until we succeed in developing treatment or vaccine. Which which I suppose means there'll be plenty of scope for a new American president to. Play a leadership role, and I, and I do think that the you know we haven't permanently burned our bridges with the rest of the world. I do think that if a new president comes into office and and changes the tone significantly, uh, other states will be will be willing and, and in fact eager to have us back
1: on the scene.
3: Can I jump well, in on this, um, David?
1: Sure. I was. I yeah. Go ahead. Uh,
3: well, just quickly, I really want to give a shout out to the governor of New York here, Governor Cuomo. Because I actually think that it, it gave me a great sense that we can pivot quickly from a bad president to a good one watching him. And a lot of people just anecdotally, um, whether they liked him before or not, they're all saying Joe Biden should put him on the ticket. You know, he has done everything. I mean, I don't know um, if our Joe on the podcast has had a chance to listen to the governor, but he not only has quoted FDR, but he's also talked a lot about um, the need for mental health uh, he's talked about courage. What is courage? You know, it's the definition of going in the, in the face of your fear and doing something, talking about the healthcare workers, talking about all of our responsibility to the common good. You know, he's given a tutorial to the people, at least of my state, but I think beyond, um, you know, about leadership and about, um, morality and courage and again, common good. So I just want to jump in with that because I think it just really does give me hope. Um, that we can pivot quickly if we elect the right type of people to government. Uh,
1: Okay. Well, thanks. Well, I was going to turn to you, Joe, but but I want to sort of frame a question for everybody as we go sort of towards the last 20 minutes of this here, uh, because I don't want to play the blame game. I I don't want to focus on what we've done wrong. I'd really rather focus on going forward what it is we need to do that's Uh, That's going to be helpful and deal with what is going to be one of the most, you know, epoch defining crises that any of us have have faced. You know, I'll just point out in the preface to the question uh, that we tape this on on Monday afternoons. And at some point between the moment now where we are recording it and the moment in two or three hours when we release it, the death toll from all of this will pass the death toll from 9-11 um, and that just is a, a metric of you know I mean clearly the the predictions are that it'll be many multiples of that but this is one of those epochal moments defining moments that a generation is going to remember uh, and it's going to last for for many months to come and so I think being prescriptive m- might be helpful and I want to turn to everybody for seeking prescriptive ideas for the U.S. or for the international community um, or any, anyone else. And I, I'd like to start with you, Joe.
2: Well, I have uh, a very
4: specific uh, thought on this and of prescription. If you go back to 1918, uh, you'll notice that the worst effects of the flu epidemic that year were in the second wave, not the first wave and i think most people would argue that we're likely to have two or perhaps three more waves of covid uh, and what's more it's likely to go and become a reservoir in the southern part of the globe in poor countries and that reservoir is going to spill back northward into our countries again and again if that's true then it's extraordinarily important that we be prepared for it. So I've I've been writing something about a particular proposal, which is the US and the Chinese as the first and second largest economies in the world ought to make a proposal to the G20 that we set up a massive fund, a UN fund, to deal with COVID in poor countries. And we do that not just out of self-interest, because it'll, that reservoir will flow back on us, but also out of humanitarian and moral concerns along the lines of what I care about in the book, which I think Evelyn's right. It does help at, at home as well, but it'll help our position internationally if we do this. So we can, we can kill three birds with one stone if you want. We can protect ourselves. We can repair this badly damaged relationship with China and we can actually establish a greater reputation for soft power for the United States. Uh so I think I my main prescription that I've been pushing right now is is a massive covid
1: fund for third world countries. I think that's essential and by the way at the end of this podcast we have a kind of a bonus uh, uh interview at uh second half. With uh, my old friend Gail Smith, who used to be the administrator for USAID, um, and and she talks a little bit about uh, the need for precisely that kind of thing uh, going forward. so there, there will be uh, uh, support for that even later in this this podcast. Corey, what what is your prescriptive take?
0: So I love Joe's idea. I was a little bit discouraged though, because that would require presidential leadership. And then uh, it occurred to me that in fact, maybe what we are seeing is the end of the Imperial presidency and a reversion to the patterns of governance that the founding fathers had envisioned where Congress takes this leadership role and you know, the, the administration doesn't have to propose the Joe's very good idea for a U.S. Chinese fund uh, for developing countries and emerging markets. They're going to get hit hard uh, with this. Uh, they, you know, leadership doesn't just come from the president. And so my suggestion uh, is one that doubles down on the strengths of American civil society and the American educational uh, soft power by saying that American scientists at our major universities are already beginning to try and develop cooperative research across national boundaries and celebrating and resourcing and um, encouraging the efforts of uh, educators, public health experts, people who aren't the president and don't need to be the president to reach out to their network of colleagues and share funding um, and other resources available is what I would recommend.
1: Good good recommendation. Um, Evelyn?
3: Well, so I actually, um, while I don't disagree with Corey, because that would be foolish of me. (laughs) And so I'm glad to, you know, on the one hand, I can see the silver lining of no imperial presidency or the lessening of the imperial presidency, I have an op-ed I'll just plug in the examiner news, which is a local paper here um, in Westchester. And um, it, it's basically five things our nation's leadership must do to overcome this crisis. And and it really does call for the federal government to, to spearhead the effort to address it. And on the international front, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff in there about DOD and FEMA and all that stuff. But on the international front, um, I really think that Joe's effort could be coupled with an international task force that's led by the UN, but of course we spearhead the establishment of this task force, and that that task force then you know, leads the effort on addressing this pandemic and perhaps future ones. The other thing is that underlying all of this is the ongoing despicable situation we have with regard to refugees and displaced persons globally meaning we have neglected those people. We have done nothing, not enough to address the causes of their displacement and refugee status. And then on top of it all, a lot of them are in sustained um, you know, b- bad, let's say unfavorable refugee situations. And those, those situations have made them now even more vulnerable to this horrible virus. So I do think if we are to be morally, um, morally on the right side you know, if we are to be morally correct and do what we think Americans do best, which is to look out for the unfortunate, not only in our country but around the globe, we should take we should undertake some kind of international effort to look out for the needy globally. And as Joe pointed out, this is not purely altruistic because all of these things come back on us if we don't manage them.
1: Good point. Good point, David. What do you think? So,
2: um, building on Joe's thought about uh, preparing the Southern Hemisphere, because it's going to bounce back uh, to our hemisphere, I would just add this. We happen to be lucky enough this year that um, the U.S. is the host of the G7. This was the meeting that was supposed to take place um, at Camp David. No, first it was supposed to take place at a Trump hotel, then at Camp David, and now will be a Zoom phone call. Um, But uh, it's a great opportunity. Because there should be a working group on COVID that would have been established around February 1st, but never too late, um, so that you're uh, immediately exchanging everything we need to know, not only from the medical side and best practices there, some of which is happening informally anyway, but from a coordinated response, a coordinated economic response, a coordinated social response, and so forth. And that would then put you in much better stead to spread that out to the G20 and to begin to enact what Joe had in mind. And it tells you something about this administration that when we had the G7 meeting uh, of uh, foreign ministers last week, there was no communique at the end. At a moment of great crisis, because the rest wouldn't sign on to President, to uh, Secretary of State Pompeo's insistence that the wording of it refer to it as the Wuhan uh, virus. Now, it strikes me the moment is here not to worry about what we're going to call it, but what we're going to go do about it. And so, you know, this is obviously um, not something that observes any borders. If it did then the president's containment method would have worked and i think that it's moment it's the moment right now to switch to a global response rather than just a national response
1: okay so we'll circle all the way around back here to you joe and i i do want to mention um that you know uh your book do morals matter is 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 couldn't be more timely and i encourage everybody as david did to to go to get it to buy it i don't i think our audience of several tens of thousands of people who focus heavily in foreign policy and national security um, is the natural audience for it. And I think they will welcome it. Um, but as 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 we look to this, you know, I always have this question in the back of my mind, um, and I don't want to miss the opportunity having you here to ask it, which is, we're always caught up in the 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 crisis of the the moment and right now we have a very big crisis of the moment um and these often distract us from other things you know prior to this we were worried about what was going on in north korea we were worried about what was going on in iran uh immediately prior to the the market downturn we had saudi arabia and the russians in an oil price contest Um, and that has now led to $20 barrel oil, which has got a lot of strategic consequences. You're one of the best strategic thinkers that we've got in the country. As you look at this, are there things we need to keep our eye on because um, they may be exacerbated um, or obscured by this crisis?
4: Well, I think the uh, major concern I have is that – World politics is changing in a way under the influence of the information revolution and globalization that creates issues which cross borders uh, without uh, our being able to control them or we can't control them alone. So our national security strategy talks about great power competition. There's not much danger that we won't look at what happens in North Korea or the South China Sea or in uh, Ukraine. But uh, what's going to happen to climate change? What's going to happen? Obviously, COVID is an example of this, but there are other ones coming along. How are we going to handle the negative effects of artificial intelligence applied to weaponry? How are we going to deal with uh, some of the questions that come from uh, the transnational uh, groups, uh, for example, using cyber threats? So I think that, that there is a lesson here which is we're not paying enough attention to in our national security strategy to things that will hurt us, but they're things which we can't solve alone and which we can only solve them if others help. Uh, you have to think about power with others as well as power over others. Structurally, with the Defense Department, State Department, and the way the press focuses on things, we're all focused on power over others. We haven't spent much time thinking about power with others. If there is a silver lining to COVID, and it's a very faint one, it may be that it begins to get us to think of these issues, the transnational threats to our security. That require us to think of power with others.
1: I think that's a, a really important point, particularly since one of the reasons that we find ourselves in the particularly acute situation that we're in is that some of those things were downplayed over the course of the past several years. Um, and uh, it can be a wake-up call to that um, as well. I uh, by the way, since everybody else has been talking about things that they've written. I had a piece in USA Today over the weekend, if people have not seen it, uh, in which I talk about the fact that crises like this throughout history do tend to uh, produce innovation and adaptation, uh, even even the most grievous kinds of crises, from the Black Plague to um, the Spanish Flu to World Wars. Um, we do learn from them, and we end up stronger, and that's why progress ends up working for us so i i I am hopeful that some of these prescriptions get put into place Um, i want to thank everybody for joining uh this part of the discussion uh including joe nye whose book is do morals matter presidents and foreign policy from fdr to trump and all kidding aside joe you did a really good job with david Uh, he's turned out very well Um, and (laughs) And, <laughs> and
0: you should get a degree of difficulty factored into your score, just like in Olympic diving.
1: Yeah, <laughs> um, but we we, oh, love that we are grateful for that. Oh. But I, with joking aside, I would also say that Joe is probably. The preeminent teacher of foreign policy thinkers that the US has had over the past several decades. And so we're grateful to have you here and on our show. Uh, and of course, we're always grateful to have Corey and David and Rosa here. And Evelyn, good luck. Um, <laughs> Thank you. You know, you're certainly the smartest person I know who's running for Congress currently. And I mm-hmm. wish you well. We all wish you well. And um uh, uh folks, uh if you're interested in, in Evelyn's campaign, uh there must be a website. What's the website, Evelyn?
3: Yes, Evelyn for F O R N Y, just the initials of the great state dot com. Evelyn for new york.com.
1: So, you know, if you've I'm been fo- make the
3: contribution.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> thank you. Thank that, you. Contributions see, uh, are
2: welcome. And Evelyn, let me tell you. Let me say that I hope that whatever Joe's contribution is, it's higher than the grade he gave me. Wow!
3: <laughs> <laughs> okay, higher than one hundred, then, right? See, I can charm yeah, them
1: good. both. <laughs> yeah, well, good. that's that's politics is work working for you, Evelyn. Well, okay, but everybody has <laughs> been listening listening to Deep State Radio for a long time. Uh, you 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 know and are, are 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 supportive of Evelyn, so you might want to go there. Um, Uh, As I said, this episode is a little different because it's got two parts. So as soon as we wrap up with this one, you're going to move on to the next one, which is the conversation I had with Gail Smith, formerly uh, administrator of USAID. So enjoy that and come back again next week, uh, uh, later this week, for the uh, next episode of Deep State Radio. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, David. Thank you. And now we'd like to move to a special guest Gail Smith is the president and CEO of the One Campaign, uh, which focuses on uh, development issues in needy countries around the world. She's served as a top advisor on issues of this sort for two presidents. She was the administrator of the U.S. Agency for International Development in the Obama administration, also handled the Africa portfolio um, and uh, under under President Clinton and i guess if i'm recalling correctly also was senior director for development and democracy at the nsc under president obama do i have do i remember properly there gail
6: you you remember right david and the uh, uh, nsc time was the same time we had the Ebola epidemic
1: right well that was actually going to start with the Ebola um uh because you were you were involved with that um uh, and uh, we've had on the show several times now, Ron Klein, who was also involved ev- in that. Um, and I'm just wondering what your perspective is on what worked then. And as you look at the evolution of this, um, what lessons may be drawn from it and and how how, how might it be different?
6: Well, you know, I, I mean, David, the viruses are different. Uh, and Ebola is certainly much, much more lethal. But I think the lessons or the methodologies that you need to employ to fight, whether it's an outbreak, an epidemic, or indeed a pandemic, are pretty consistent. And I'm sure you heard this from Ron and others, and it's, it's what a lot of us are trying to get out there. You need science and facts. Uh, you need to build systemic responses. One of the most striking things I've heard in the media lately was Dr. Craig Spencer, who is uh, in emergency medicine in New York, and he was working in Ebola in the field. He contracted the virus. We evacuated him to the U.S., and he's still at it, not there fighting, and he was asked for a comparison. and He said during Ebola, we never needed to worry that we wouldn't have PPE. Is a pretty striking contrast. But the reason for that was we and others built a supply chain, and you've got to have a systemic supply chain, which don't have in many countries yet. The other piece, David, that I think is key, including for a lot of people who uh, live in our world on sort of international affairs and national security, we've got to have a global response. These viruses don't ask for visas. They don't need passports. And we just can't solve it in one or two countries, and then think we're done. We've really got to take a global approach.
1: Yeah, no, well, I think that's that's absolutely true. One of the things that has struck me, um, and it's and I, I will admit, it's gotten me a little trouble, Social media this morning is that um, no. yeah, no, it happens. But that the that, that that the 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 virus started in China, and the Chinese right. response was to suppress information about it. Um, and then uh, as it spread, the initial reaction of the United States was to suppress information about it, was to not test. Now, I'm not equating you know, Chinese tactics where people disappear off the street and, and Trumpian tactics where you just ignore scientists or you don't test. Um, but when you have the two largest countries in the world, speaking of global response, and the initial reaction of both of those largest countries in the world um, is to be, um, to, to try to hide the disease. Um, that's a bad thing. But, you know, I, it, it actually goes a little further. I was thinking about it, you know, and again, in the context of development, we used to always, or for a while there, we talked about BRICS. But if you, if you looked at the other large countries in the world, um, India, Russia... Brazil, in addition to China and the U.S., they've all had terrible responses to it. I mean, you yeah. know, the big the big countries aren't leading well.
6: But they're not, and and one of the things you're getting at, uh, David, and as as this, I'm not that you might have caused a business firestorm this morning, is that one of the things we desperately, urgently need in every incident like this is transparency. Right, Because countries have to be very clear, provide the information, share the data, because these things spread, these viruses cross borders. During H1N1, for example, there was a country that didn't want to share samples. And they didn't because they were afraid they were going to be blamed. And that's the second piece. So the first is transparency. The second is blame is a useless distraction. And the virus loves it when we get into spitting matches, And right now, it doesn't matter who shot John, who said what to whom, all eyes need to be focused on the science and the data and working together to end this. But on your your last point, you're you're absolutely correct, and I've been thinking about this a lot, with the global cooperation, if I compare it to the response to the epidemic, when global cooperation was extraordinary, but as it also has been to multiple international events over the years. I think part of the reason we're seeing the lack of it now is that multilateralism has become a bad word in many circles. Uh, The notion that countries can turn inward and act on their own and that that will be sufficient has become more popular. And our international institutions, as flawed as many of them may be, Um, have not been used we've not been exercising the muscles of global cooperation for some years now and it's showing what
1: has surprised you so far about the response of the US
6: Um, I I think it's surprised me that we well it's surprised and and disappoints me that we moved late Uh, because that's just really a problem but that's that and let's move on I think the biggest surprise right now is that it's not really knitted together. Uh, To make this work, we need the kind of leadership we're seeing, for example, some of our governors, which has been extraordinary. But just like it doesn't work if you suppress the virus in some countries and not others, we can't just suppress it in some states and not others. So there needs to be a knitted together federal response coordination and system. It all comes back to systems approaches here in addition to the good work that's being done by governors. So the fact that we don't yet have a uh, national supply chain um, surprises me because it's hard, but it's not that hard.
1: Well, you know, it strikes me that it's a little bit akin to some of the issues that you have dealt with and that many of us have dealt with who've been dealing with development issues over the course of the years. The U.S. looks a little bit like a developed country. It has a, a weak central government that's been lagging on this and seeking to suppress information. It's got a very uneven response between local governments, states, and and cities. It lacks a lot of the supplies that it needs, basic supplies. You mentioned PPE or ventilators, hospital beds even. Um, uh, and, and, you know, I, I was struck that, you know, in the past few hours, you know, we've, been seeing stories of plane loads of supplies being sent to the united states from china you know it's 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 the you know berlin airlift in reverse right it's it's the chinese flying us um uh in big big loads of tons of the equipment that we that we need the us is behaving a little bit like a um a developing country that doesn't have the infrastructure in place and You know, to what do you attribute that?
6: Well, I think it all comes down to preparedness. And, you know, we have all on many, many issues tried to exercise that adage that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And it's often very, very difficult. Policymakers, decision makers often want to focus and often need to focus on what's there in front of them in real time. And some of these things that seem distant or unlikely the bottom of the list. And I think there there are two things here. A, I think we've known for some time that this kind of threat was going to be uh, increasing and more potent over time. Again, we saw in the Obama administration we dealt with six or seven viruses that qualified for consideration, tracking, or action actually by the White House and the NSC. and it's preparedness, and we've got to invest in that preparedness so that whenever things like this happen, we know what the inventory is, we know where the levers are, we know how to build a supply chain, and we can turn on a dime. And I'm afraid what happened here is that some of the preparedness uh, that I actually believed was in place, one of the things I think we felt very proud of leaving the Obama administration was to leave behind... Um, in, in the same way that George Bush left into us a global fight against AIDS and everything that went with it, the architecture guidance and everything we knew and could build on preparedness for just this kind of threat. And unfortunately, we were not prepared when it hit, and then we were late in actually responding. We do have some assets, though. we got some pretty good epidemiologists. We've like we got a lot of experts. Across the federal government, the more those are drawn on,
1: the better shape we'll be well let me let me shift the focus a little bit because you in your current capacity, are looking at um, some of of the world's you know neediest countries and most vulnerable countries uh, as we've talked about this crisis so far, uh, although it started in China, we saw a very rapid spread in um what are perceived as 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 better off countries, uh, uh, Italy, notably Spain, Europe, well over 20,000 deaths so far, and the U.S. And the Southern Hemisphere was kind of more or less untouched at the beginning. That seems to be Mm -hmm. changing now. And I'm just Mm -hmm. wondering if what you think the trajectory of this is going to be um, in places that are really potentially more vulnerable to it than we are, like in Africa.
6: Right. Well, I think we don't know for certain, but if you watch the progression from Asia to Europe to North America, and now we're seeing some evidence in Latin America, uh, the Middle East, and Africa, um, we're literally watching this virus circle the globe. And we can assume some things from that, I think, and that is that we will likely see in Africa what we've seen elsewhere, a relatively small number of cases at the outset, but then a sudden huge, huge caseload with all the problems that come with that. And as is true in our own communities, this virus treats the most vulnerable, the worst. It has the greatest impact on them. They've got pure coping mechanisms. And there's a lot going on on the continent right now. There's an African CDC, which was established in 2016, set up in 2017, or launched in 2017, there's the experience of Ebola, and there are a lot of governments that have spent 20 years investing in building their health systems. That's not enough to withstand what is likely to come. There are a huge number of people living in extreme poverty on the continent. Social distancing is extremely difficult. Care is going to be a massive challenge if you look at the deficits we've faced, even in this country, on medical supplies and healthcare workers. So it's going to require, I think, a few things. One is a really, really large humanitarian response, and second is that when we talk about the global economy, we actually talk about the global economy, which includes Africa, which is already feeling the impact uh of these shocks on economies across the continent.
1: well you know that brings me to another dimension of this um which is the economic impact you know we saw. Reports today from uh, the St. Louis Fed that uh, it's, it's estimated that U.S. unemployment associated with this might rise to 32, 33, 34 um, percent. The highest unemployment got during the Great Depression was 22 or 3 uh, percent. So we've never had an unemployment crisis like that in the U.S., uh, mm-hmm. And of course, the way our system is set up, we lack resilience to deal with that because we don't have national health care, because we don't have um, uh, unemployment and other kinds of social safety nets that other countries have. Many the European countries, for example, uh, in particularly in Northern Europe, are saying to their workers who are not working, we'll pay your salary. So, you, you know, if the company can't pay it, you're going to get it anyway um and 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 you know half of americans only have 500 bucks in their savings account so you know crisis like this that's now going to go on and keep them from working for two three four months uh breaks them but but we're the richest country in the world and we have the ability to write checks for a few trillion dollars each time it's kind of sad, we we could have handled this in a somewhat different way, and we're likely to do it several times between now and the election, but a lot of the rest of the world doesn't have that ability, right. and so the economic knock-on effects of the of the virus may end up being more more painful than the virus itself, am I right?
6: Well, um, I don't want to walk into the, the cure is worse than the disease, but the economic Uh, impacts are going to be massive, and they're already being felt. Tourism, for example, which is not only a huge provider of revenue and foreign exchange across Africa, but is also the livelihood of all those many kinds of businesses that uh, are part of that industry. That is way, way, way down already. You look at the major airline companies, Boeing, Airbus, and others, there are major airlines, anchor companies for the entire continent uh, who have the knock-on effects of that already and they don't have a stimulus or a bailout package. What this is going to mean, the impact on economies and therefore people and the impact on people, remember the millions of people who live in the informal sector, is going to be massive. What we think that's going to take is some really... Uh, huge, creative, and new kinds of actions from the IFEs, from the IMF and from the World Bank. There's going to be a need for likely special facilities. Debt relief is an issue that's now back on the table. It's more complicated than it was 50 or 20 years ago because the debt is held by different actors, but nonetheless, dealing with debt and interest service payments is going to be need to be part of the ingredient. And then the last thing, and this is something, frankly, I really want to fight for. You know, usually when we talk about the global economy, it's North America, Europe, and China. Let's really talk about the global economy, whether it's in the G20 or in other forms, and figure out how in the massive global solutions we're going to need, uh, we include those parts of the world that have been hit the hardest.
1: Well, one of the areas that we could do that, as you pointed out, is through the IFIs, uh multilateral financial institutions but but clearly when you look at this and you go back to your very first comment about a global response you need the world health organization you need the international financial institutions you need global cooperation among regional groups and international groups you you need you may well, need to waive certain kinds of trade laws you you, you, you you there's a lot of things you need to do to create a response right. to this and one of the striking things about the Trump administration and I'm Trying to say this in a way that's not you know highly politicized, but it's just purely you know objective, although it's critical, is that you know for seventy five years the u s. has sort of led the way towards building the international community. We often did it in a self-serving way, but more, and you know we sometimes ebbed and flowed a little bit. but for the most part, we felt that it had a role. For the past three, three and a half years, we have been taking shots in international institutions, at multilateral cooperation, at alliances, and a lot of these underpinnings of the international community um, that had been central to US foreign policy for three quarters of a century. And so now as you get to this next phase of this crisis where you really need all of that stuff, you have the leading economy of the world as a question mark. and I, And I wonder how do those institutions evolve with a uh, with a uh, uh, an ambivalent at best US in the middle of it.
6: I I think that's one of our greatest challenges david is that you know if you if you look at the the role we could be playing with the UN with the IMF with the World Bank in the G20 in the G7 in all of these fora we could be having enormous influence. And I realized that the Ebola epidemic did not uh, inflame the entire world. But that was one, and we've seen many instances throughout recent history, where the exertion of U.S. leadership made a huge difference and brought the best out in a lot of those institutions. So I, I think it's the biggest challenge we have. I, it is my hope that the heads of those institutions will exert more influence and authority. You know, usually they're they're powerful, but they really need their key members to be out in front. And this time we may see something where the leaders of those organizations have to be much more out in front, and we try to push countries to follow. I think the second thing that's really interesting to think about and will probably be something that practically we really need to think about when this is all over, uh, which is do we need to reimagine some of our global institutions and, and how they work and what authority they have? Because right now, we've got tools on the table in all of these entities that we are simply not using. And the U.S. isn't playing. The UK is not nearly as active as it once was many years ago. China, Russia, I mean, think about it. They are not exercising the muscles we need in this global architecture to win the fight.
1: None of them. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And to be honest with you, I had this hope that... You know, in 2016, you know, I follow the polls very closely when Hillary Clinton was going to win. I thought, well, one of the things that she's going to have to do is focus on this issue of reinventing the global community of a kind of present at the creation 2.0 moment that allowed the international community to reflect changes in global leadership because of new powers playing a bigger role and new kinds of issues, whether it's cyber or climate um or other transnational issues that are not really well covered by these institutions. Mm-hmm. Instead of doing that we've gone in the reverse and uh those institutions have all been weakened. I mean the Trump administration sought to reduce funding for for a number of those institutions that would be crucial in all of this. Mm-hmm. And um uh, you know, I, 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 guess the, the question is whether the United States is going to have the political will to do it. Or as, you know, if you recall in 2017, uh, the, 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 the few days before Trump was inaugurated at Davos, um, Xi Jinping came in and said, look, if the U.S. isn't going to lead, we'll lead. And China has played despite the despicable role that it played at the very beginning of all of this, it has sought to take advantage of some of its resources to build political ties during this, to provide aid or doctors or whatever. Um, And we could end up if the United States and Europeans don't lead uh, with different actors shaping the system in a different way that we might not like so much.
6: I think that's, a, a real possibility, and I think, you know, there's that that line about recording a vacuum, and when there's a vacuum, somebody's going to fill it. Now, I think the the other scenario here, and you got to understand, I I am an absolute optimist. You know this about me because if when I feel cynical, it's kind of like, what's the point?
1: I think they are well, a you're are you're, you're from the Midwest, and
6: I, just... I am, I am, and proud to be. Um, <laughs> But I think there are a couple other pieces of this. Um uh China's definitely gonna assume a larger and larger role over the over the future and, and you're absolutely right, they're doing that now in response to this pandemic and some may want to describe it as opportunistic or hypocritical given their role in the beginning. But it's a fact. Whatever however we may want to judge it. So that's a fact. I think the the second piece, and one of the things I hope if there is a after action, like sort of global after action that says, well, huh, well we didn't handle this too well. How do we need to think about it? Is that the discussions and deliberations about what our global institutions need to be and how they work will not be a discussion that is just among the world's wealthiest nations because none of it's gonna work if that's the way it's structured. And that may have worked after the Second World War, but as a prominent and very insightful African economist said to me at a conference a couple of months ago, the rules that were written after World War II are no longer working even for those who wrote them. So how do we rewrite the rules and do it with an eye to the fact that and again and this is and you know this, this is fact and not opinion, even though a lot of people try to portray it as a political view or an opinion. We are interdependent and linked and unless and until we build and invest in the international institutions, we need to buttress that, to reinforce that, and to allow us all to leverage it, we are going to be unable to manage effectively the kind of crises that we're in right now. And, you know, I don't know whether it's that we need to make the point to politicians that this is politically smart, it's a fact and not my opinion, or it's going to be really, really expensive if you don't do this, both in terms of capital and politics. I'm not sure. What I speculate is that people all over the world, and what I hope, are increasingly going to demand it. Citizens are complying with guidance all over the planet. We are doing our parts. We are all in our homes. But when this is over, we need to make very, very clear to our leaders that we expect and we demand much, much better.
1: Well, I think that really is a, 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 a ideal point to end on and also to end thinking about because you know one of the things that sets this era apart um, not just views about institutions or policies or politics but it's also people and Mm -hmm. if you look at the, the the leading governments of the world the united states is led by donald trump russia is led by vladimir putin UK is led by Boris Johnson. India is led by Narendra Modi. Um Bolsonaro is at the helm in Brazil. Um Angela Merkel is leaving the stage. Um it, the the Japanese, you know, are 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 diffident and undecided about how they want to handle this. There is a leadership void, not just an institutional void. And there's a real question about how and when that's going to be filled, I think.
6: I think there is. Uh, I think there's also a huge uh, opportunity, seems an odd word to use at this moment, but a a path that those of us as citizens really need to think about. Um, We're seeing also acts of global solidarity. We are seeing people organize. We're seeing people take care of each other. I think the more we can organize across borders um, and make clear, because you know, there's a lot of people in the world. There are a lot more people than there are leaders. And I think we've got to organize ourselves and press. And again, demand the kind of leadership that in a time like this gives us what we need transparency, facts, science, action, cooperation, all of those things. So I think, yes, we've got to think about who is in leadership positions and what are the bricks now? And it couldn't be more different than when that concept was even uh, first thought of. Um, But we also got to think about, so what are we going to do? And how are we going to make clear to leaders all over this planet? uh, At late, distracted, uh, it's just not good enough. It's not going to keep us safe. It's not going to keep us secure.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely right, um, uh, and it's why I'm so glad that we were able to get you here to join us uh, on this edition of Deep State Radio. Gail Smith is the president and CEO of the One Campaign. She used to be the administrator for USAID. She's one of the people who helped put in place a lot of the systems uh, that we once had to deal with these kind of crises by virtue of experience and foresight. Uh, hopefully at some time in our near future, uh, we will have that kind of capability, experience, and foresight again, perhaps with Gail in the midst of it. Uh, but in the meantime, I thank you very much, Gail, and uh, perhaps you know we'll be able to coax you back to join us again here uh, at Deep State Radio at some time in the future. I'd love to. Thanks, David. It's good to talk to you. Good to talk to you, too. Bye-bye.